drank of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Now, we looked at that last time a little bit there about the many. Um, the many being the issue of the nation of Israel. I, Isaiah 53, my people. And then Mark, Matthew 1, you can call his name Jesus. He's going to save his people from their sins. So, again, the prophetic program is going to be focusing in on the uh, on redeeming Israel, getting Israel ready and right, and then bringing in the issue, then through believing Israel, then go to the Gentiles and uh, take care of them. Then in verse 24, and he said unto them, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. So the, the covenant is made with Israel. And God's going to redeem Israel so that they can become that nation that he chose them to be. Yes, they are the sons of Abraham, but they're also the sons of Adam. They also have a sin issue. Uh, come back to Exodus 24. They have a sin issue that needs to be taken care of. And what's going to happen here is that sin issue has to be dealt with so then they can be that nation that God chose them to be. Otherwise, they're just like everybody else. So when you think about the New Testament, the New Covenant, there's something happening here in the Gospels that the Lord is doing. Again, we're in the upper room. They're finishing up the Passover meal, and then he institutes a new meal. I'm going to fulfill the Passover completely. It'll be done in its figure, in its type, in its pictures. I'm going to do this. Now here's the new. So we're going to take that old covenant, the old, and we're going to do away with it. Hebrews says it's going to vanish away. And now the new covenant where he's going to take his spirit and he's going to put it in them and he's going to cause them to uh, walk and to obey and to do the law. We'll see the verses here in a minute. But first, before he can do that, he has to take care of their sin issue. He has to forgive them of their sins, of their iniquity. Then he can give them his righteousness. Then he can come over. But the issue of the shedding of blood, this is my blood. So, and, and that issue, it really goes back to Exodus 24. And in Exodus 24, Moses is going to ratify the old covenant here. Verse 3. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice say, and said, all the words which the Lord hath said we will do. And again, that was the wrong answer. They should have never said that. It, rather, what they should have said was, we need you to help us. And really, you're going to need to do this for us because we can't do it in our own. And, but they thought that they could do it. And they concluded that they could keep the law and do the law. And actually, the law was designed to tell them you can't do it and was designed to bring them to the place where they realized they couldn't do it. So verse 4, And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and rose up early in the morning and builded an altar under the hill and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Notice, Moses wrote it all down, verse 5, And he sent young men of the children of Israel, which offered burnt offerings and sacrifices, peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in a basin, and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. So that we got a blood sacrifice happening here, verse 7, And he took the book of the covenant, and read it in the audience of the people, and said, All that the Lord has said we will do, and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, and sprinkled it on the people, and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. So Moses, the Mosaic law, the, Mosaic, the old covenant, the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant, however you want to say it, is ratified by the shedding of blood. The sacrifice is made, and then the blood is taken and sprinkled, in this case, on the book. So when we come back here to Mark 14, when the Lord says, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many, 
what, it, what he's saying is, is I'm here to ratify the New Testament. I'm here to ratify the New Covenant, not with the bloods of bulls and goats, but with my blood. See, no. So that's what he's getting at. And by the way, they don't understand this. They don't get it. And we'll see that in just a minute. Come over back to Matthew 26, where this passage sits. Matthew 26, and look at verse 28. Matthew 26, 28. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Very clear there. See, he's shedding the blood so that Israel's sins can be forgiven. Then they can be given the, the provisions of the new covenant that provides for them, and off they go. So the new covenant, the New Testament, okay, will include, it, it'll enable them, and it will empower them to be the, that nation that he's chosen them to be in the earth. But it's his blood and the shedding of his blood that's ratifying that. Now, if you come back to Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 31, and this is where the New Testament is in the Old Testament, as that was always the quiz. See, so you've got to be able to pass the quiz. Jeremiah 31, 31. And again, it's very, it's very uh, interesting to see the religion today, the mainline Christianity today, Put you and I under the new covenant. When obviously, verse 31, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the body of Christ. No, it says with who? The house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, I know what they do with that verse is they spiritualize it and say, Well, we are replacing Israel. And really, he's talking about the body. And we're spiritual Israel. And they do that little gymnastics game with it. But the verse clearly says, who's this being made with? House of Israel, house of Judah. Verse 32, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. So obviously, we're not doing the old covenant. We're doing a new thing here. There's something new here. We're not going back to the old. Now, verse 33 and 34, they are reversed in the way that this is going to be accomplished, but they're in the right order and what they're going to benefit. So verse 33, But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God, and they shall be my people." This is what I'm going to do to them. I'm going to write the law, the, 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 my law, in their uh, inward parts. The other passage to this says in, in Ezekiel uh, 36, he says, I'm going to put my spirit in them, and I'm going to put within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. So what's he going to do here is he's going to, He's going to come along and he's going to take the Holy Spirit and he's going to put it in them. And when they're in them, then, then he's going to buy that. The law gets in them and it's going to cause them to go do. Okay. It's going to enable them. It's going to compel them. It's going to equip them to keep the messianic, not the mosaic, but the messianic law. They couldn't keep the mosaic law. They, they, they messed up with it. So, Actually, they had no ability to keep it. It condemned them. Verse 34, And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And now that's how he's going to accomplish verse 33. What's he going to do? He's going to go shed the blood. This is my blood, the blood of the New Testament for the remission of sins, Matthew 26. So in order for the, the activity of verse uh, 33 to come to fruition, to be real, 
the Lord is going to take the Spirit, He's going to put it in them. That's going to enable them to come along and be that nation. But first, they have to have justification and forgiveness of sins. And that's going to come through the shedding of His blood. Come back to, to the Gospels. Come back over to Luke 24. So the issue here in, in, in Mark that we're going to see, really, is that they, he's telling them this, and they don't grasp it. They don't catch on to it. They're, they're, so they're, they're still, you know, they just don't quite get the death, burial, and resurrection issue of what's happening here. And again, we've already seen in Mark, you're in Luke 24, if you flip back to chapter 18, verse 31 to 34 there, He's going to tell him he's got to go to Jerusalem. And verse 31, Then he took unto him the twelve and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully entreated, and spitted on. And they shall scourge him, and put him to death. And the third day he shall rise again. Remember what they're going to We'll get over into Mark here in a little bit. And they, they pay off some witnesses to say that his apostle, his disciples took his body. Well, if they believed that he was not going to be there and resurrected, then why would they say that about them? Take? See, they don't believe that. They're, they're not convinced of it. Verse 34, and they understood none of these things. And this saying was hid from them, neither knew they the things which he spake. By the way, if you come over to John 20, this is just, this is... John 20, hold on to Luke 24, we're getting there, okay? If you come over to John 20, the day of the resurrection, the morning of the resurrection, um, I'm going to have to sneeze here, <laughs> trying to hold it back. <coughs> Excuse me, <clears throat> that was nothing, that was little. <laughs> John 20 You've got Mary Magdalene and them. They go up to the, to, to the, to the, to the uh, tomb. They see everything. They see what's going on. They come. They get John and Simon, and off they go. Verse 9, For as yet they knew not the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead. That's after the event. They're still struggling with grasping. So come to Luke 24. So when he tells them in the upper room, this is my blood shed for the, of the New Testament for the remissions of sins. They're just, they've got a blank stare going, huh? They, and they're just not quite catching on. Now, Luke 24, this is where John, after the resurrection, they're in the upper room, they're locked in. So it's really the evening of, the res, of, of Sunday, Sunday evening. And as they spake, verse 36, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said unto them, Peace be unto you. Now what he's going to do here is he's going to demonstrate to them that he's the real deal. He's not a ghost. He's not a figment of their imagination. He's real. But they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said unto them, Why are ye troubled? And why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see. For a spirit hath no flesh and bones, as ye see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, Have ye here any meat? I mean, see, they're still just not... <laughs> catching on they think they're seeing a, a you know a hallucination or a, a spirit or a ghost or something well they give him a piece of broiled fish and of honeycomb and he took it and did eat before them see that so he's again demonstrating so then he says verse 44 he said unto them these are the words which i spoke spake unto you while i was yet with you that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. All of the Old Testament, everything the Old Testament said, anything about the Messiah, about his death, burial, and resurrection, I told you, I'm here, Luke 18, the three times in Mark, 
over in Matthew, every time he told them and they were questioning him and doubting him and looking at him funny, they don't get it. Verse 45, then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And it's at that point, the evening of the resurrection, after the resurrection is done, every, now he unveils the, the meaning of the scriptures. So now they can understand the scripture. So when you go back to, to Mark 14, verse 24, when he says this to them about this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many, they don't quite understand it. They're, they're still kind of, they don't grasp the impact of it. And they really don't get the, the impact until after the resurrection. Now they fully got, get it. It's unveiled. It's relieved to them. Okay? But in reality, if you come over to Romans 3, the fullness of the understanding of what happened at Calvary doesn't really come until the revelation given to the Apostle Paul. And there's just a little side note here, Romans 3. You start reading in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So now we've got something new. We've got some new information, the but now. All right, the righteousness of God without the law. Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness, now watch, for the remissions of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. You see, when he says there in verse, to declare, uh, to declare his righteousness for the remissions of sins, that's the terminology used back there in the Gospels that are past. Now, just so you understand the past, come o- hold on to Romans 3, come over to Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9. Those aren't your past sins. Actually, your sins were future of Calvary. (laughs) They hadn't happened yet. So literally, the information here is how God forgave sins in the uh, the past. And how did he do it? uh, God knew that Calvary was coming. The Father understood Calvary was coming. So, again, Hebrews 9, if you look there at verse 15... And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. You see that phrase, by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament? That's what Paul's referring to in 325 of Romans. By the way, go back there just quickly here. Why? How was he able to have to declare his righteousness for the remissions of sins? And, and back there in the Old Testament, he does it with Dan, David. He does it here and there. How he knows it's through his forbearance. He Paul gives us some information about the completeness of the work of Christ at the cross. And that allows us to understand how God was able to justify people in the Old Testament before the cross. And it was based on his forbearance. Now, if you look at verse 28, by the way, verse 26, to declare at this time, see, his righteousness. So it's through Paul alone that we begin to learn about the fullness of what was accomplished at Calvary. And it begins to, it begins to, un, it began to be unveiled to the apostles there in Luke 24, right after the resurrection, but not the full, complete, and just a, hey, this is why I had to go die. Why? This is my blood shed for the New Testament for the remission of sins. By the way, Hebrews 9, I know you left it, but verse 16, he says, for where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator, for a testament is a force after men are dead, 
otherwise it is of no strength at, at all while the testator liveth. So the New Testament doesn't begin in Matthew 1, okay? It starts after the resurrection here and actually in, in later, <laughs> call it Acts, if you would. So the New Testament starts after the resurrection. So we got end of the gospel accounts and then Acts, but then it's interrupted by the dispensation of grace to then be picked up once the dispensation of grace is over. So, you know, I, the Bible publishers, go back to Romans 3 here. The Bible publishers put that New Testament mark there, and it's been that way f since they, they, they wrote the book into English, translated into English. But again, when you get in, it's just like the Old Testament doesn't start in Genesis 1, starts over with Moses, see. But you say that, and everybody goes, <gasps> you know, and it's like, well, okay, so we start it in Genesis 1, all right? Look at Romans 3, though. Look at verse 28. This is very interesting here. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. If you let your eye run back to verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So, all through history, from Genesis 1-2, man, one, chapter 1, all the way down through, what is God looking for? Faith. So, no matter where they're at, it's always faith. It's faith, it's faith. Come back to Mark 14. So, he, and again, only Paul reveals that. Only Paul lets us know that. But here in 1424, he says unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. And again, Matthew, remission of sins. Then he says, verse 25, Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, this is very interesting because of what's coming in Acts. Uh, look over at Acts 3 here. Well, Acts 2. Get Acts 2. And you see what Peter is going to say here. Because we're, he's, he's we're in the upper room. We're headed to the garden. We're headed to, to the trial. We're headed to, well, we're headed to the garden. We're headed to the betrayal by Judas. We're headed to the trial. We're headed to... Uh, be to to cross to the cross Calvary, and Peter picks up on all of this. Uh, Acts two, uh, if you start there in verse twenty three, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden. And he goes on and begins to talk about, down to verse 30, the issue of the resurrection. Verse 30, therefore being a prophet, talking about David, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he should raise up Christ. Why? To sit on his throne. Paul says we're being justified freely. He was raised for our justification. Peter says, no, he was raised to sit on the throne. See? Verse, so he's seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. So when, Paul, when Peter begins to talk about the cross, it's in association with this coming kingdom. Now what did he just say? I'm not going to drink this new with you until when? I'm in the kingdom over here. Now look at verse 34. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. So, this confirmation of who he is, all right? He's gone away on exile. He's been resurrected. He's up on exile. And one day, what's he going to do? He's going to come back and make his foes his footstools. By the way, that quote out of Psalms 110 says, Make your enemies your footstools. Peter here, Luke here, says foes because enemy can be one minute they're an enemy and then the next minute they're not. But a foe is someone who's continually aggressively after you. Where an enemy, he'll take a break every now and then. 
And what do we have here? Here he is. Who is he? Verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? No, a wonderful question. Okay. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remissions of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So Peter, again, terminology, we're doing, why are you repenting? Why are you being baptized? It's for the remission of sins. So we're going to repent. We're going to change your mind about who you think the Lord Jesus Christ is. You're going to change your mind about who he is, about him being Messiah. About, so, so you're going to change your thinking. He is Messiah. Then you're going to be water baptized. So you're going to confess that he's Messiah. Because those that are water baptized are doing what? Justifying God. By, we saw that last time in Luke there. Okay, So they're going to go and be baptized of John's baptism. And then what's going to happen? The remission of sins. Now, if you come over to chapter 3, and if you look at verse 19, when are their sins remitted? See, verse 38 says, for the remission of sins. It doesn't say you're going to get it. You, it's for. You, you're going to get it. 319. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. When? When the time of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. When are they going to get their remission of sins? When the times of refreshing shall come. See, that's a reference to the Lord's return, his second coming. So the nation of Israel is looking for their day of atonement when Christ returns. So when you go back to Mark 14, he's, he's, Christ, when he says this, in verse 24 and 25, that this is the blood of the New Testament, and I'm not going to do this again with you until I'm coming in my kingdom, because that's where the blood and the remission of sins takes place for the nation. I'm doing this event that impacts this over here. Okay? So the context of all this, and again, they're not clued in quite yet. So the context here of, of where we're sitting, he's going to open the scripture to them. They're going to understand it. They, eventually they do. They grasp what happens right after the resurrection. And again, that's how the prophetic program is going to work itself out. Uh, come over to Romans 11, just on that issue. Romans 11. Romans 11 and verse 25. So when the Lord says this to them, it isn't this new wine and all the stuff. I, you know, here's some weird ideas out there. But the content, Peter tells you, listen, we didn't understand it over there. We got it now, and you need to get right. You need to repent and be baptized. Why? For the remissions of sins, because the kingdom's being offered here once again to you. So the kingdom's prophesied. Then it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's at hand. And in Acts 1 to 7, it's literally offered to the nation. All they got to do is take it. And they don't. They reject it. So he nails them, or gets ready to nail them, if you will. Uh, Romans 11, if you look at verse 25, For I would not, and this is Paul, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. So there's, there's, there's a blindness, and it's, it's not going to last forever. It's going to last until the fullness. Now, by the way, fullness of the Gentiles is not the times of the Gentiles. Back in the gospel. Fullness, bringing it full. 
the fullness of, if you look across the, the page there to verse 12, now if the fall of them, and that's Israel, be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. So the fullness is referencing the salvation going to the Gentiles that's available now through the fall of Israel. So that's the dispensation of grace. So what Paul's saying is, is look, the, the DOG isn't going to last forever. Verse 26, And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, There shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. Even Paul confirms what Peter says, which confirms what the, what the prophets say, and it's a when. When is he going to take away their sins? When he returns and he sets up that kingdom. And that's, again, Jeremiah 31, uh, uh, Hebrews 8, Ezekiel 36, all of that. So when you come back to Mark 14, the value that they see in the blood of, the cro of, of, of Christ was in, was, was in the value of the new covenant. And that was what was providing the day of atonement for Israel to then be able to go into her kingdom. So when he says, this is my blood, and I'm not going to do this until, I, until I'm in the kingdom of God, he's demonstrating the value of what he's about to go do for the nation of Israel. They don't get it. They don't understand it until after the fact, looking back, they go, aha, there it is. You and I, we weren't even there <laughs> through the completed word, through the Apostle Paul, the progressive revelation. We can look back and say, see, there it is. And we, they can look back. And by the way, they do look back. That's what Peter's doing in Acts 2 and 3. He's looking back, and they see that he said it to them. And it's in that context that he's now going to say, verse 26, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. So they're going to sing a hymn. And this hymn... Uh, there's a psalm that they're going to sing, okay? And when they do that, most of the commentaries say that this is Psalms 118, and they go out and they go back and forth and everything. And again, if you come back to Psalms 118, uh, it, it, when Scripture is kind of silent about some of that, you, we probably need to be silent about it as well. But Psalm 118 is the most quoted chapter of the Old Testament in the New Testament. It's quoted quite a bit. And the book of Psalms is uh, a book of prophecy. Not just hymns and history and everything, it's all that. But it's really a book of doctrinal and dispensational importance to the future of Israel and what's going to happen. In the book of Psalms, there are five books within Psalm, okay? I told you 118. If you come to Psalms 106, 107, okay? 106, Psalms 106 ends book four. Psalms 107 begins book five. Now, I don't know if you have in your Bibles across 107, book five, Okay? Probably not on the digital media, but in the study Bibles, it'll be there. But I'll show you how to tell when these books end and begin, okay? Psalms 106, verse 48. Here's the end of book 4. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say what? Amen. Praise you the Lord. You see that Amen. That's Psalms 106.48. The Amen is the indicator we just concluded a book. All right, so Psalms is a big book, but there's subsequent books below. Um, if you come back to chapter 7, uh, let's see, 89. Chapter 89 and verse 52. All right, 89, verse 52. Blessed be the Lord forever, Amen, and 
Amen. So that ends book number uh, three, I believe it is. Come back to chapter seven. Yeah, book three, chapter 72. Chapter 72, verse 19. 72, 19. And blessed be the glorious name forever, and let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. See that? There's the end of book two. Come over to chapter 41. We're going at it backwards, but chapter 41, verse 13. Chapter 41, verse 13. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting unto everlasting. Amen and amen. And again, so... If, even if you don't have book two, book, you know, across there, that's the mechanism. The amen and amen. I'm ending book one. I'm ending book two. So there are, there are one book with five sections. Now, each section has a theme about it connected to the Davidic covenant. In the Davidic covenant, there are five titles, five offices, five jobs if you will, that the Messiah is going to accomplish. Book one is Redeemer, and it's all about the cross. Book two, he's the deliverer. He's going to deliver Israel from her enemy. Book three, he's the avenger. He's going to destroy those enemies. Because, you know, you can win the battle and go home, and then what happened? That enemy popped back up. Say, no, he's going to destroy them. Then in book four, so in book one, two, and three, Israel is completely liberated from the satanic policy of evil against her. She's set free. Then in book four, here's the king. Book five, here's the blesser. All right? Psalms 118. So, and by the way, each book has three sections within it. You have a, a, uh, a, a, a cause... Here's, what's, uh, here's the reason why the book. Then you have a core. Here's how to deal with it. And then you have the, the result of it. Here's what's going to transpire. So in the first book, you find out real quickly that man's got a problem. They need a redeemer. So then you got Psalms 22, 23, 24. Here's the redeemer, and then here's the result uh, on, the, on working your way out. So... When you, by the way, you can take the five books, uh, the first book, the Redeemer book, there's Ruth, the book of Ruth, the Deliverer, there's in the Judges, the Gideon, Deliverance, the Avenger in the Judges, there's Samson, brings the house down on them. Then you've got the King, David, and you got the Blesser, Solomon, because he's bringing in the wealth and everything. So you can, you go to Isaiah 9. And you got verse six. You got wonderful. There's the redeemer. You got counselor. There's the deliverer. You got mighty God. There's the avenger. Then you've got uh, prince of peace. There's the king. And then you have uh, everlasting father. There's the blesser. So you can all of that works all the way out. So when they are doing the Psalms, I'm, I'm sorry, the Passover. They, so if you come back to the, the Psalms 118, by, by the way, on your way there, if you look in chapter 11, or 111, Psalms 111, you see the praise ye the Lord, and 112, praise ye the Lord, 113, praise ye the Lord. Those are called the Alleluia Psalms. Hallelujah is not in Scripture. They drop the ha as A, okay? And those are there. So what the idea in the commentaries is, is that Psalms 113 through, or 111, 12, all the way to 118, during Passover, they are singing this information. And they sing these Psalms uh, through, at different points, all the way through, uh, and, and so forth. And uh, they're, all of them look toward the Messiah, and the deliverance the Messiah is going to bring to Israel in the kingdom. Okay? So Psalms 118 here, the most quoted chapter in the Old Testament in the New Testament, all right, 
sits right in front of Psalms 119, which is the longest chapter in the book. Actually, it's the longest chapter in the Bible. And all of it is about the Word of God. 176 verses, I think, if I remember the number right. Okay? Of the 176, all of them but three specifically make a reference to the Scripture. So Psalms 119 is really, here's the heart of Israel who's fully trusted, the, uh, who, who's fully turned to the Lord, and that's only accomplished by Psalms 115 to 118. And again, what you have here is the remnant, that believing remnant. They have the Word in their heart, it's living out through them, so the natural result is Psalms 119. It's very fascinating as, as you look at this. Psalms 118. When they go out and they sing, they sing a hymn. And by the way, it doesn't say hymns. just says a hymn. And then they're going to go out in the night. The last thing that they do here is they sing, literally sing, Psalms 118. Okay? And when you look at this, it's going to take us right to where Christ is. And this psalm is going to bring it, it's, it's very important because it's going to begin to reference the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 1, O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, because his mercy endureth forever. Let Israel now say that his mercy endureth forever. Let the house of Aaron now say that his mercy endureth forever. Let them now that fear the Lord say that his mercy endureth forever. So here you have the Holy Spirit writing the psalm, and he now speaks in the first person of the believing remnant, the believer in Israel. And the thing that is going to move through here and the foundation of it is going to be God's mercy endureth forever. Verse 5. I call upon the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. And again, here they are. Here's the believing remnant that's going to be talking. And what the focus is, everything is going to be based on his mercy enduring forever. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? Boy, what? that is exactly the theme out of Paul. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. <laughs> I'm between, you know, to, to go and be with the Lord is far better, but to stay I need, you know, and that's their attitude. Why? Because they're, they're trusting, they've turned to the Messiah. Drop down to verse 10. By the way, verse 8, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Isn't that interesting? It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Well, we take those verses and use them, you know, kind of today, but in reality, that's what they're going to have to do in the tribulation. They can't trust the government. They can't trust man. They can't trust the princes. Why? It's mark of the beast time. It's this. It's that. It's all these different things. Verse 10, all nations compassed me about, but in the name of the Lord will I destroy them. They compassed me about. Verse 12, they compassed me about like bees. They are quenched as the... Uh, as the fire of thorns, for in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. The Lord, I mean, if you think about, he's talking about the problems that Israel is going to face and their, the persecution that they're going to face. Doesn't the Lord say that the bulls of Bashan compassed me about on Calvary? Psalm, yeah, he does, Psalms 22. Verse 14, the Lord is my strength and song and has become my salvation. This is almost exactly what Exodus 15, 2 in the Song of Moses, when they're crossing the Red Sea, they're singing. Here's the Lord delivering Israel out of the satanic captivity. Drop down to verse 18. The Lord hath chastened me sore, but he hath not given me over unto death. They understand the reason that they're going through all of the tribulations. All of the difficulties, they understand it's because that fifth course of judgment is on them because there's sin in the camp. They understand. The believing remnant is not, you know, blindly, oh, we don't know what's going on. They, they, they've, they're caught on here. They understand that there's judgment 
because of their sin. Yet what do they know? The Lord's going to do what? Deliver them. His mercy is going to endure forever. The, again, verse 18 there, but he hath not given me over unto death. He's not through with me. So we can make it if we stay the course. Verse 19, open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go into them and I will praise the Lord. Remember Jesus says, straight is the, is the gate, narrow is the way. Isaiah 26, there's a gate into the kingdom and so forth. Here's, here, here we are. Verse 20, the gate of the Lord into, the righteous, uh, into which the righteous shall enter. The Lord says, I am the way. I'm the door. You, you want to come in? You got to come in through me. Verse 21, I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me and art become my salvation. Hold on to Psalms. Come over to Luke 18, 19. Luke 19. Think about that. It's just fascinating how contextually they're going to end the upper room and they're leaving to go to Mount Olives and they're singing a song, a hymn. And it's Psalms 118, which is going to bring them. We'll see it here in just a minute. But look, look here at uh, Luke 19 and uh, that verse 21. I'm sorry, yeah, verse uh, 21. I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me, and art become my salvation. Now look at Luke 19. The first ten verses, you've got this guy named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He was up in the sycamore tree, and he's come down, we're going. But notice verse 8, uh, verse 9. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house. For as much as he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Notice Zacchaeus, what's going to happen? Hey, because this guy's a son of man, salvation has come to this house. Luke, uh, Psalms 118, verse, hold on to Luke 19. I will praise thee, and because why? thou art become my salvation. Say. Psalms 118:22 The stone which the builder refuseth is become the headstone of the corner This is the Lord's doing it is marvelous in our eyes Now stick something in Luke come over here to Matthew Matthew 21 Matthew 21 Because now we've got this issue about the stone Now we're going to be uh we're, we're gonna, now we're getting into it here. Matthew 21, uh, verse 42. Matthew 21, 42. Jesus said unto them, Did ye never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Well, didn't we just read that in Psalms 100? Yeah, 118. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you, and he's talking to the Pharisees and the chief priests, and given to a nation, that's the little flock, Luke 12, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Woo! And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard this, heard his parables they perceived that he spake of them so first coming he's a stumbling stone okay second coming he's a grinding the powder stone daniel 2 44 and 45 what did they do israel has rejected the messiah back to psalms 118 what did they do the <laughs> This is a day, I'm sorry, the, the stone which the builder refused is become the headstone of the corner. Who's going to be the head? He's going to be it. He's the one. Now look at verse 24. Psalms 118, verse 24. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, everybody uses that verse. Now, come to Luke 19 again. And again, 
It's used every Sunday at church somewhere. But it's in the context here, it's not what he's talking about. Now, in Luke 19, notice verse 38. All right? So we have Zacchaeus in the first 10 verses. Then he's got the 10 pounds, and he's got all that going on from 11 to 27. And 28 to, to, to 40, we've got what is called the triumphal entry. He's going to come into Jerusalem, Psalms 19:38, saying, Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And actually, that's going to be Psalms 118, verse 26. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of, Israel, of the Lord. So, again, there it is. So, he's with the entry into Jerusalem, Christ is fulfilling Psalms 118. Now, Luke 19, drop your eye down to verse 41. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. That the, the things that are going to take place with the rejection of Christ and him being made head over the corner, you guys were there, you had the opportunity, and you rejected him. And that issue goes back to Psalms 118, when he says there in verse 24, this is the day which the Lord hath made we. Who's the we? Believing remnant. Why? We're going to rejoice in it. Why? The day of the Lord's here. He's ready to set up the kingdom. Okay? Verse 25. So, again, they're in the upper room. They're, the Lord's he's ready to go die. He says, my blood, there's the New Testament. I'm fulfilling the Passover. I'm, I'm getting you ready for the new and we're going to sing a hymn here, and all of it's being fulfilled all around them, all, all this time. Psalms 118, verse 25. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Where do they get their prosperity? In the kingdom, see. They're looking for the salvation from their enemies, and they're looking to go into the prosperity of the kingdom. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. So again, Luke 19, 38, we're off we are. Now watch verse 27. God is the Lord, which hath showed us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords, even under the horns of the altar. Thou art my God, I will praise thee. Thou art my God, I will exalt thee. O oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Now, notice he says, God is the Lord, which hath sh showed us light. Who's the light? The Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to bind the sacrifice with cords, even unto the horns of the altar. In the midst of all this stuff being fulfilled, he, he's, that's an odd thing. Bind the sacrifice with cords, even under the horns of the altar. And he, it's, uh, as they're leaving the upper room, the last thing that they sing about as they go out into the garden, as they're going to, he, he's going he's gonna to surrender himself to being betrayed by Judas. He's going to take... Uh, he's going to be taken, he's going to be tried, he's going to be mocked, he's going to be scourged, he's going to be crucified, rejected because of the unbelief of Israel. That's why this is happening. And right in the middle of all that as they're singing, his mercy is enduring forever and we're coming in, he says, bind the sacrifice with cords even under the horns of the altar. And it's an interesting thing here. Had the nation of Israel believed this passage, they literally could have taken the sacrifice and bound it to the offering, to the altar. Okay? Now, that phrase, bind the sacrifice with cords, those words 
that, that phraseology only shows up in one place, and that's Genesis 22. Come back to Genesis 22. In Genesis 22, we know the story. Abraham's taking Isaac in this, what we under, come to understand later, uh, this wonderful picture of the cross and the cross work of Christ and, and, the, term, and the use here. Um, but this issue about binding the sacrifice, uh, if you look at uh, Genesis 22, just jump in there at verse 4. Then on the third day, see there's the third day issue. Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. Um, the mountain that they're looking for ends up being Mount Calvary eventually. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder. Now watch, and worship, and come again to you. You see, Abraham understood the very basic component in the Abrahamic covenant was that Isaac's the seed, he's got to be here, so the Lord will have to resurrect him. If I, you know, okay, There's a resurrection belief here. That's why in Hebrews 11, it'll say, by faith Abraham went and sacrificed Isaac. Why? Because he believed in the resurrection. Now watch verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son. He took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? That's a great question. That's a legitimate question. Isaac's looking at it. Where is the lamb? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. God will provide himself as the lamb. Son, we're going to trust in the Lord. We're going to trust the Lord. Verse 9, And they came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar thereof, and laid the wood in, the, in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. You see that bound, bound the sacrifice, bound Isaac on the altar. When he bound Isaac, the sacrifice, to the offering, Abraham is doing it by faith. He did it because God told him to do it. Isaac surrendered and was a willing participant because his father told him to do it. So had Israel by faith done what Psalms 118 had been saying all along, they could have by faith offered the sacrifice and literally bound the Lord, put him on the altar, and it would have been done. But what did Peter say? By wicked hands you crucified him. They didn't. They operated in, out of unbelief. So when you come back to Mark 14 here, the Lord does for them by faith what they could not, would not, didn't do by faith. So when he says, this is my blood, I'm going to go do for you what you wouldn't do, you couldn't do, you didn't do, and I'm doing it by faith. Because what this and the third day I will resurrect you resurrection is there so in Mark 14 at this very moment here verse 26 he's now going to set his face to go to Calvary he's going to he's going to bind himself to the sacrifice on that altar they could have but they didn't they wouldn't they didn't do it by faith he did so if you think about in his mind, in his thinking, he's, he's, he's obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, Philippians 2 says. So what we're reading here is his mindset that we need to really kind of pay attention to. What, he literally gave himself over for ultimately you and I. And that's a wonderful thing to think about. 
he did that. Now, Israel could have done it. And I'll be honest with you, if by faith they had, it would have looked just like Genesis 22. Because what happened? By, we didn't finish reading Genesis 22. All of a sudden, a, lamb, a, a, goat, a he goat showed up, right? That's exactly what would have happened here. But they didn't do that. They didn't operate by faith. And that's the difference in all of this that the Lord has been pounding since day one of his earthly ministry. Actually, John the Baptist hit him. You generation of vipers, and you know who warned you, and all this stuff. And yet, really, he comes along and says, hey, I'm going to go. Now, the guys don't understand it. Verse 27, Jesus said unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered and we'll get into all of that next time because we're going to go out into the garden but when they had sung a hymn they went out into the mount of olives and that's where the garden of gethsemane is located out in that general direction and the hymn that they're singing is psalms 118 because that believing remnant is where we're at in the focus of and he's going to go now and die bound the sacrifice with cords and he's going to, on the, that altar, and he's ready to do it because Israel was not operating and functioning by faith. They were actually a wicked and perverse and, and an apostate nation. Okay? Whew. All right. So we'll pick up in verse 27 and follow down through uh, uh, next time. All right? Okay. Dearly Father, we thank you for the evening, Lord. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for to look into it and to see the mindset of our Savior as he's ready now to go to Calvary and to accomplish what needs to be accomplished for the redemption of mankind. And we give you the praise and the honor in that. In your name we pray. Amen. All right.